Previously on Heavy Metal Historian, we dug into the influence of subgenres such as industrial metal and power metal. And much earlier, we examined the influence of literature on metal and recently explored the vampires and the impact that they've had on the genre as well. Now, we keep on the horror folklore kick and turn our focus away from vampirism and over to lycanthropy. We look to the emergence of the creatures that would become known as werewolves and where the mythology came from. We investigate how they've influenced literature and movies, from the emergence of the werewolf folklore to the development of works like The Wolfman and An American Werewolf in London to the tales of lycanthropy told in music. We look into werewolves and heavy metal. Welcome to episode 34, I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. As we examined on our last episode, horror monsters originating from legend and folklore such as vampires have had a huge impact on our culture, and they've been portrayed in heavy metal music as well. But there are more creatures of the night than just vampires. So for this edition of Heavy Metal Historian, we answer a question posed by one of our listeners, Robert Bailey, who asks, what about werewolves? How has lycanthropy influenced heavy metal? Lycanthropy, or the condition of a human turning into a werewolf, like vampirism, has undoubtedly been represented in human folklore since ancient times. The legends stem from the myths of shapeshifters, creatures that appear human but can change their shape into that of another monster or animal. The concept of shapeshifting is evident in all cultures dating back to prehistoric times, even with evidence in cave paintings of half-man, half-beast artworks showing stories of legend from that culture's era. There were werewolf stories as far back as you find recorded stories. And in all countries, uh, in Greece, in Middle Europe, in Asia, they're everywhere. At the dawn of civilization, there was little that separated man from beast. People then thought humans could revert to animals, a belief called shape-shifting. Virtually every society, primitive societies and so forth, have stories and beliefs about transformation from animal to human form and, and, and vice versa. You go back, even on the cave paintings, you have pictures of what appear to be half man, half stag. All civilization has probably been a story of, you know, keeping uh, certain impulses and emotions and, and, uh, and urges uh, in, in check. And most of these are the, uh, um, the more primitive instincts, the animal instincts. So ever since man started becoming civilized, you know, the werewolf has been lurking somewhere back there. In, in, in the shadow. It is present in the stories from ancient mythology and is still a popular trope used in modern stories. The first specific references to lycanthropy that we know of come from ancient Greek mythology and literature. The scholar Herodotus wrote in his histories of a tribe called the Neuri who all turned to wolves once a year for a few days and would revert back to their human shape afterwards. Then there was also the legend of Lycaon, a character from which we get the word lycanthropy, who tried to serve human flesh to the god Zeus. Zeus detected that he was being tricked into consuming the flesh, so he disciplined Lycaon by transforming him into a wolf. 
A version of the tale also exists in ancient Roman mythology as well, where Jupiter sits in place of Zeus. An even more horrifying account of a werewolf came from the Roman poet Ovid. Writing in the first century, he told of an ancient Greek king named Lycaon, whose cruelty was so notorious that the king of the gods, Jupiter himself, paid him a visit. But Lycaon refused to believe his visitor was a god and tested him by serving a sumptuous feast in which he had secretly mixed human flesh. Cannibalism, even, even among the ancient Greeks, was, was a no-no. I mean, that's a, that was a real taboo. To put a cannibal meal before a god was a tremendous offense. Jupiter instantly detected the tainted food. Furious, he turned Lycaon into a wolf so he could pursue his penchant for human flesh in a more suitable form. From the name of King Lycaon comes the word lycanthrope, meaning one who transforms into a wolf. This story has, has had a profound effect upon uh, our understanding of werewolves because here right at the very beginning was a recognition that uh, the whole idea of werewolfism was related to uh, those aspects of the human being that were opposed to civilization and civilized society. And then there is the first known piece of literature published around 60 CE by Gaius Petronius Arbiter, a publication called Satyricon. Part of the prose tells the tale of a person who transforms into a wolf and runs off into the woods. So while the vampire myth never really fully formed and coalesced into folklore until the Middle Ages, with werewolves, the myths began far earlier in the age of antiquity. And for werewolves, their legends grew even fiercer as the Middle Ages progressed, thanks in part to the Vikings. Totemic elements of the Viking warriors like the Berserkers were the Ulfhednar, or the wolf-coated men. These fighters wore the hides of wolves in battle, believing that do so could channel the spirits of the beasts and make them more efficient warriors in combat. While the act of wearing the hide was probably more totemic in style and origin, this practice by the Ulfhednar also possibly contributed to the mythos of lycanthropy as history progressed. The legends of werewolves reached their historic height in 16th century Europe, where there were abundant claims of werewolf attacks. Lycanthropy was perceived by some to have originated from witchcraft, so during the period of the witch trials, it was commonplace to hold trials for those accused of werewolfering. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Europe was a hotbed of werewolf activity. It was a tumultuous time, racked with irrational fears, superstition, and sweeping religious change. During the height of the Middle Ages, particularly as the Reformation was, was about to begin, the, the great struggle against witchcraft, the burning times, uh, began to occur. And right on the heels of the struggle against witchcraft, a new struggle with werewolfism began. And all of a sudden there was this new wave of belief that werewolves and witches all existed and that they were all having a supernatural and negative impact upon society. The panic surrounding werewolves grew from witchcraft hysteria. From 1300 to 1700, thousands of people were brought to trial on charges of witchcraft. 
The accusations, human sacrifice, cannibalism, and sexual license, came primarily from peasants. And the accused were almost exclusively peasants as well. Which fears were also fueled by religion. Then the Catholic Church was the dominant force in people's lives. It dictated behavior and provided explanations for phenomena people didn't understand. According to church doctrine, Satan intended to destroy Christian civilization and required hordes of disciples, witches, to do so. Sorcery was viewed as treason, an attempt to overthrow the church. Werewolfism, or lycanthropy, was considered a form of witchcraft. Both involved a pact with the devil, heresy. People are all around were afraid that strange, magical things were happening to other people and against them. Once a hysteria begins, it tends to spread. So that when a really gruesome crime was met up with, werewolves were immediately suspected. By the 16th century, the secular courts had adopted Inquisition procedures to protect society from witches and werewolves. In 1532, judicial torture became the legal means to determine malevolent witchcraft and lycanthropy. You can't actually prove the crime materially. You can't prove that somebody cast a spell at a particular moment. So the only sure way of obtaining a verdict is a confession. And once you've got that idea into your head, uh, the best way of obtaining a confession is to apply force. Inquisitors hearing these confessions and finding it hard to contemplate the inhuman and sadistic horrors of the crimes enumerated, preferred to think of them as having been committed by a true monster, half man, half wolf, in league with the devil. The earliest known case was of the child-eating werewolves of the Vaud from 1448, but the definite peak of werewolf hunts came during the European witch trials and witch hunts of the 15th and 16th centuries. It's believed several thousand people were accused of being werewolves in the era, and most of them were put to death as a result. The folklore connected with werewolves during the period wasn't exactly as consistent as the elemental rules of werewolvery in modern horror films. In fact, there were many means by which people could become lycanthropes in the folklore. The full moon really does have a connection with genuine werewolf lore because there is a belief that somehow the full moon creates madness in people. Lunacy. Moon. So the full moon and the transformation from man to beast is a natural, magical connection. While the standard full moon transformations were present in some of the stories, some were said to shapeshift by applying a lotion to their skin or by donning a magical or cursed wolf hide. Other tales indicate a curse by some kind of animal spirit. So who did kill the beast? It was Jean Chastel. He came here to Notre-Dame-des-Tours on a pilgrimage where he melted three silver medals to make bullets. According to Jean Richard, this story of Chastel melting medals to make his ammunition is the first written account of silver bullets being used against werewolves. Merci, mon père. The 
According to tradition, you need to use blessed silver bullets to kill a werewolf. As we considered on our vampire episode, what we often find in myth, legends and folklore are hints of truth, in the sense that there are often explanations for things that were unexplainable during that period of time. And what we find with the case of lycanthropy is that people of the era did not have the scientific knowledge to explain certain medical conditions. One of the more obvious illnesses is that of hypertrichosis, a genetic disorder causing excessive hair growth. The hair grows all over the body, including over the face and arms, and the condition has been informally referred to as werewolf syndrome through the years. Petrus Gonsalves, the first known case of a person with hypertrichosis, was a nobleman who had his portrait painted during the 16th century. There is no doubt his condition and his portrait contributed to the werewolf mythos. Hypertrichosis is a rare genetic disorder that occurs in one in every billion births. It causes increased hair growth all over the body. And this can be very extensive, so extensive uh, that it virtually covers the skin surface and uh, makes the child look like a a dog or animal uh, or werewolf. In the 16th century, this disease was observed in Peter Gonzalez and his children. There are these wonderful drawings of the, 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 the people with these furry faces, looking, by the way, very much like Lon, the Lon Chaney Jr. makeup. During the Middle Ages, such people could have easily been mistaken for werewolves. Seeing these pictures would, say, would lead people to believe, oh my, yes, yeah, goodness, yes, it's all true. Other medical conditions have been suggested as possible ailments that were misinterpreted by people of the era as lycanthropy. Congenital porphyria was once suggested, with symptoms of photosensitivity, reddish teeth, and psychosis. Some researchers have also proposed that sufferers of Down syndrome may have been considered to have been afflicted with lycanthropy. Ian Woodward, author of The Werewolf Delusion, puts forward that it may have been rabies that could have been the origin of the werewolf myths of the time. But there is one other condition that could have been a factor in perpetuating the mythos of werewolvery during the Middle Ages. It is a psychological condition, quite literally called clinical lycanthropy. It is defined as a rare psychiatric delusion in which the patient believes that they can transform or that they have transformed into an animal. Between 1520 and 1630, more than 30,000 people were claimed to be werewolves, and like Peter Stump, several were executed. But these executions alone don't prove the people on trial had any sort of unnatural ability. Details of the crimes have led some historians to suggest that those accused of lycanthropy could actually have had a mental disorder and been serial killers or cannibals. And today, lycanthropy is a genuine psychiatric syndrome, describing a condition in which patients believe they or other people can, under certain circumstances, turn into wolves. Based on medical literature from the 2000s, there are over 30 published cases of clinical lycanthropy. And there was also a criminal case in France in the 1950s where a man accused of murder believed he did so after changing into a werewolf. He was later diagnosed as suffering from clinical lycanthropy. And that case leads us to another cause that may have been an explanation for werewolves, serial killers. While there are recorded instances of serial killers prior to the 20th century, to those of medieval Europe, discovering the gruesome results of a serial killer's actions would have been perceived as inhuman. Add in a dose of cannibalism in some cases, and you have a series of fatalities that could have only been caused by a beast or by a werewolf. Older civilizations may have been exaggerating the evidence as they attempted to understand the world around them, but the most chilling prospect is, in this case, the most likely. 
that the werewolf legend as we understand it came about as a way to explain the ferocious and terrifying acts of madmen, murderers and cannibals that we would call serial killers. Men and women who literally acted like crazed beasts. In one case from 1589 in Bedburg, Germany, a farmer became known as the werewolf of Bedburg after he was charged with murdering 18 victims and consuming their flesh. His name was Peter Stump, and as part of the werewolf trial, he was tortured on a rack before pleading guilty to being a lycanthrope. Stump was executed in a most brutal fashion, put to a wheel where flesh was torn from his body by red-hot pincers, followed by the amputation of his limbs. Once finished, he was beheaded to ensure he would not rise from the grave. As a warning against similar behaviour, local authorities erected a pole with the torture wheel and the shape of a wolf on it. At the very top, they placed Peter Stump's severed head. In reviewing the case, some scholars have concluded that Stump, the werewolf of Bedburg, was actually a serial killer. Whatever the reason, the concept of lycanthropy not only entered medieval folklore, it entered the cultural mindset during the European witch hunts, and it reached a fever pitch of nearly mass hysteria proportions, not dissimilar to the panic surrounding vampire hunting we discussed last episode. But like the vampire mythos, the werewolves of legend would enter the pop culture of the 20th century, and while there would be literature that would propagate the legends, the ultimate idea of a werewolf would come to be in film. Unlike vampires having Bram Stoker's Dracula and monsters having Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, werewolves did not have a definitive cultural stamp in literary works. Wolfman is a great, great film. What the werewolf lacks is a great novel. And that's perhaps why the werewolf is not quite as, as popular as the vampire or, 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 or the Frankenstein monster or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There are a lot of very fine werewolf stories, but no, there's nothing to match Dracula, nothing to match the, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Notwithstanding this, lycanthropy did appear in literature originating with the aforementioned Satyricon from 60 CE. In the Middle Ages... Fairy tales and nursery rhymes proclaimed the concept of the big bad wolf in stories such as The Three Little Pigs and Little Red Riding Hood. Gothic horror stories from the 19th century highlighted werewolves in some capacity. The first known example was Hugues the Werewolf by Sutherland Menzies in 1838, which was followed by Wagner the Werewolf in 1847 by G.W.M. Reynolds. Shapeshifting made an appearance in The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson in 1886, though the werewolvery rudiments of the tale are buried in implicit subtext. The most acclaimed novel of the era was 1896's The Werewolf, written by Clements Hausmann. But despite the amount of werewolf literature from the period, none of the published works made the cultural impact of the likes of Stoker's Dracula or Shelley's Frankenstein. It would instead be in movies where the werewolf would shine. The first of the werewolf movies to come from Universal Pictures was 1935's Werewolf of London, a mainstream release, but not as iconic as the film that would follow it. The Wolfman, released in 1941, featured Lon Chaney Jr. as the werewolf. Like the Dracula and Frankenstein movies from Universal's monster films of the era, it established the iconic cultural context of what a werewolf was and the rules of the legend.
Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. The werewolf rules became deep-rooted in future works based on the Wolfman's groundbreaking story. To become a werewolf, one must be bitten by or scratched by another werewolf. In some cases, an inverted pentagram appears on the palm of the cursed person, a hint to the previous folkloric connections with witchcraft. The person turns into a wolf on the full moon, and the only way to kill the werewolf is with a silver bullet. These tropes, features, concepts and rules seem mostly universal in future werewolf tales. Like Bela Lugosi's Dracula performance and Boris Karloff's monster portrayal in Frankenstein, Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman became unforgettable, striking, and iconic. It would set the benchmark for all werewolf movies that would follow, including the remake of the film in 2010, featuring Benicio del Toro in the title role. While werewolves would continue to feature in films during the 20th century, they would experience a revival in 1981 with the release of two key movies, The Howling and An American Werewolf in London. Based on the novelization of the same name by Gary Brandner, The Howling was directed by Joe Dante and was more or less a serious take on the werewolf phenomenon. It contained some primal and sexual undertones present in the subtext of both the novel and the film and was the first of eight films in the Howling movie series. We've got to warn people. What do you see? The Howling. Somewhere in this city, in this human jungle, it begins. What do you see? What's there, Karen? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe.
An American Werewolf in London, conversely, was a dark comedy interpretation of the werewolf mythos, written and directed by John Landis. The movie follows two American men backpacking across England when they are attacked by a werewolf. One dies, and the other bitten by the wolf must take on its curse. The movie was an astounding success, winning an Academy Award for the special effects and the makeup achievements for the transformation scenes, which are still iconic today. In recent cinematic history, perhaps the most popular werewolf movie is Ginger Snaps, a 2000 Canadian film directed by John Fawcett following the story of two teenage sisters. One of the sisters, Ginger, is mauled by a creature responsible for recent attacks in their area. She goes through a rapid and aggressive change, both physically and with regards to her disturbing and risk-taking behavior. The movie overall uses lycanthropy as a metaphor for adolescence, and it does so very effectively. And like the exodus from folklore to legend to literature and into film, the tales of werewolves also found their way into music as well. The earliest known references came in the tune Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, performing in costume in an almost prototype shock rock fashion. The song was released in 1966. Oh! Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want. Listen to me, little red riding hood. I don't think little big girls should go walking in these spooky old woods alone. I'll This was trailed in 1969 by Credence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising, which actually wasn't written about werewolves. Instead, the song later evolved into being associated with lycanthropy after its inclusion in some soundtracks, and has remained in the cultural mindset as being a werewolf-related song. The most popular werewolf song, however, was Werewolves of London, composed and performed by Warren Zevin from his 1978 album Excitable Boy. The song entered the top 40 in the United States, and was incredibly popular in the United Kingdom as well. metal was concerned, as was the case with vampires, it was in shock rock where shape-shifting was first alluded to. While not explicitly about lycanthropy, the work of Screamin' Jay Hawkins and then by Alice Cooper dealt with the transformational aspect of the character on stage, working in conjunction with the darker horror-based music. Likewise, the work was continued by Kiss into the 1970s. 
Gene Simmons ended up basing and evolving his character image of the demon on many aspects of the famous 1930s and 1940s Universal Monsters to one degree or another. In 1977, on the Love Gun album, Gene Simmons wrote and sang the song Almost Human, expressing his demon persona through the mythos of a werewolf-style transformation. later, lead vocalist Ozzy Osbourne left Black Sabbath beginning early footsteps into a solo career that would be culturally redefining for the Prince of Darkness. Ozzy explored elements of shock rock on his first two solo releases, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman. But on his third solo album, Ozzy would enter werewolf territory. The album, Bark at the Moon, takes its name from the title track in which Osbourne studies the shape-shifting phenomenon of lycanthropy. A music video was made for the song which borrows heavily from the werewolf subtext in Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. best-known lycanthropy song in heavy metal is Of Wolf and Man by Metallica. Following the band's triumphant success with the album And Justice For All in 1988, the group moved to a follow-up produced by Bob Rock that would propel them into major commercial success worldwide, The Black Album, from 1991. While known for songs like Enter Sandman, Nothing Else Matters, The Unforgiven and Sad But True, Metallica's Black Album also featured Of Wolf and Man. The song was ostensibly more of a tribal and totemic interpretation of the werewolf mythos, of the fresh rawness in the primal nature of the hunt.
Like we explored vampiric metal in our previous episode, there seems to be an emerging trend of werewolf metal as well, although it probably should be termed lycanthropian metal or lichen metal. Incubus Succubus have been known to focus on werewolves in a few of their songs, while the group called Lycanthropian Carnage takes their name from the werewolf phenomena. Grimwolf from Sonoma, California are a thrash metal outfit with elements of groove metal that refer to themselves as pure American werewolf metal, while avant-garde metal band Ulver also take their name from the Norwegian word for wolves. The band has concentrated on the topics of wolves and werewolves in many of their songs, most notably on the album Natan's Madrigal. Cradle of Filth have dabbled in a wide range of esoteric literary and horror-based concepts in most of their music. Werewolves and Lycanthropy have emerged in several of their songs, including Queen of Winter Throne, A Dream of Wolves in the Snow, and Of Mist and Midnight Skies. On the other hand, power metal and shock rock band Powerwolf base their name and much of their music on the concept of lycanthropy and other horror rudiments. Moonspell established their career in black metal, focusing heavily on werewolves in their debut album Wolfheart. An American metal band Macabre, who focus in on songs about serial killers, recorded a tune about the case of Peter Stump titled The Werewolf of Bedburg on their murder metal album. Burning Peter Stokes, you've been in atrocious crimes. 
Many other bands focused on concepts about werewolves as well. My Chemical Romance released a song called House of Wolves, and thrash metalers Death Angel recorded Thrown to the Wolves on their 2004 album The Art of Dying. Iced Earth's Wolf from the 2001 Horror Show CD was inspired by the Wolfman films from the Universal Pictures, released during the 1940s. While death metal legend Six Feet Under zoned in on Werewolvery with great intensity in their song Lycanthropy. Maiden touched a little on shapeshifting with the number Moonchild from the Seventh Son of a Seventh Son concept album in 1988. Sonata Arctica wrote and recorded several lycanthropy songs, with the most renowned being Full Moon on their debut release Ecliptica in 1999. Danzig zoned in on werewolves on numerous songs in his career, though the most specific song to focus on this was Killer Wolf on the Danzig 2 Lucifuge album. And horror punk outfit The Cramps, jumped into campy horror with the song I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Aussie black metal band Destroyer 666 wrote a number of werewolf songs, including Lone Wolf Winter and Unchained the Wolves. 
hard rock group Crocus also delved into lycanthropy with their song Werewolf on the 1978 album Painkiller and the song Nightwolf on the 1983 release Headhunter. Typo Negative specialised in making allusion to several gothic horror topics in a vast range of their material, but were a little bit more unambiguous with the song Wolf Moon when it came to lycanthropy. And the metal legend himself, Ronnie James Dio, warned us all to lock up the wolves. There are also newer and independent groups out there focusing on werewolves and lycanthropy in their music too. From Brazil, black metal band Misanthropia started as a dark ambient project focusing on paganism and nature, along with lycanthropy. Benighton Empire from Ohio frequently focuses on Norse mythology in their music, but has been known to bring forth some werewolf tales in their metal as well. Chaos Wolf from Mexico were founded in 2007 and focus mainly on a philosophical focus of lycanthropy right from their name to their music across several demos and one full-length album in 2013. While Sardonic Wrath blends elements of black metal with death metal and doom metal, focusing on occultism, Satanism and lycanthropy.
New Jersey black metal group Wolfgraf also focus on lycanthropy in their music, along with the occult and paganism as well. And Musta Capelli from Finland, which is Finnish for Black Chapel, have put out several releases, including one full-length album that centers on topics about forests, Satanism, and of course, werewolves. From Mississippi, black and death metal outfit Raised by Lycans cover werewolfery throughout their music, with their debut album Lycanthropy 101, released this year. Necroforest from Croatia also deals with werewolves in their music and has released several splits and demos along with their full-length album Slavic Invasion, which was also released this year in 2015. Bandcamp, there were not as many newer groups for werewolf metal as there was for vampires, but they are there nonetheless. Neo horror punk outfit The Straw Nihilist released a tune called Werewolves on their 2015 EP The Stray Dogs. Meanwhile, Doom Metaler's Lamplighter released an album called Lycanthropy in 2014, with the title track Grinding Noise through the death metal inspirations on the release. The album is available at a Name Your Price deal from the Torn Flesh Records Bandcamp page.
Zool, look at werewolves with their song The Beast Inside from the album In the Search of the Perfect Death, while horror punk group Nostril Damas explore the concept in the number called Shapeshifter. And featured as our closing headbanger on our vampire episode, funeral horror punk outfit Cadaver Club converged on the Wolfman in their second single, a song called Lunatic in Love. of a werewolf metal scene is slowly emerging among newer bands. Another group coming out of Romania is called Heavy Duty, and they embrace a progressive thrash metal approach to their music with a touch of crossover. Their song, Angry Again, tells the tale of a person afflicted with lycanthropy, but like the Hulk, can transform into the wolf when enraged. The song is a free download from their Bandcamp.com page.
vampires and zombies appear to get all the attention in the world of horror and monsters. But in recent years, it would seem that the topic of werewolves or lycanthropy is beginning to emerge as a strong secondary focus for metal bands. Perhaps in the future we may see literature and films focusing on dystopian werewolf futures or a werewolf apocalypse. And perhaps, just maybe, we might see an expansion of lichen metal. And now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. While Screaming Jay Hawkins can take the credit for being the father of shock rock, there was a musical scene that preceded him known as novelty music. The genre mainly focused on specific fun topics, sometimes related to a holiday or to comedy or both. And the songs were generally quite popular. The Little Red Riding Hood song by Sam the Sham we pointed out earlier is a good example of a novelty song. One novelty song which has since become legendary is Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett. The song parodies the monsters focused on in the Universal Monsters series of films, integrating them into a pop and rock party dance style scene and was released in 1962. The tune features Frankenstein's monsters, the mummy, Dracula and of course the Wolfman and has since become a popular Halloween song. It was also a massive influence on the future emergence of shock rock. In true punk and metal form, legendary band Misfits recorded a cover of the song in 1997 and released a re-recorded version on their Project 1950 album in 2003. But it all began with the original by Bobby Pickett. Let's take a listen. When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It caught on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match From my laboratory in the castle east the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode They did the mash They did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash They did the mash It caught on in a flash They did the mash They did the monster mash The zombies were having fun The party had just begun the guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the mash. They played the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Rack's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. 
Now everything's cool, Drax a part of the band And my monster mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is sent you And you can mash And you can monster mash The monster mash And you my graveyard smash Then you can mash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can mash Then you can monster mash And now, let's have a glance at this week in metal news. Legendary blues guitarist and performer B.B. King has died. It has been reported that King passed away peacefully in his sleep after a long battle with type 2 diabetes. B.B. King was a massive influence on all who followed him, inspiring a range of artists from blues to rock and to early heavy metal. Artists such as Eric Clapton, Slash, Jack Russell, Peter Frampton, Simon Wright, Gene Simmons, Nicky Six, Miles Kennedy and more joined in with online tributes to the great man. He was 89 years old. Lazarus AD drummer Ryan Shuttler also passed away this week. Details surrounding his death have not been revealed, but sources indicate that a heart attack may have been the cause. Ryan Shuttler was 28 years old. Founding Yes member Chris Squire has been diagnosed with acute urethroid leukemia. He will be stepping down from the band to undergo treatment. Yes will be proceeding with their North American tour with Toto in the meantime, and Billy Sherwood will be standing in for Chris Squire as the tour progresses. And in a bit of good news for this week, Doctors for Iron Maiden's Bruce Dickinson have given the vocalist the all-clear following his treatments for cancer earlier this year. Dickinson stated, I would like to thank the fantastic medical team who has been treating me for the last few months, resulting in this amazing outcome. It's been tough on my family, and in many ways, it was harder for them than for me. I'd also like to send a heartfelt thanks to all our fans for their kind words and thoughts. Iron Maiden will now proceed with completing their new studio album, but will not be touring until next year. Lamb of God are releasing a new album entitled Seven, Sturm und Drang, in July of this year. The band issued a streaming preview of the release with a new song called Still Echoes. The song is available for streaming at YouTube. Five Finger Death Punch also have a new album on the way, entitled Gotcha Six, and is scheduled for release August 28th. The band will be going on tour to promote the upcoming release and have put out the album cover artwork for fans to preview. Anti-Gamma have released their seventh album called The Insolent. The release was recorded in Warsaw, Poland, and the band is currently on an East Coast tour of the United States. Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver has been tapped to pen the upcoming Alice in Chains biography. McKagan is already the author of two books, also writes for Seattle Weekly, and has played with Alice in Chains on their 2006 comeback tour. It's also believed a new album from Alice in Chains may be surfacing later this year. Metallica's James Hetfield recently performed at the Acoustic for a Cure Benefit concert in San Francisco on May 15. During the show, his daughter Callie joined him on stage where the pair performed a surprisingly outstanding rendition of Adele's Crazy For You. Footage of the performance is currently available on YouTube and over at the Metal News subreddit. And finally, the only death metal band in the world fronted by a parrot has returned 
The band known as Hatebeak are back with vocals provided by Waldo, a 21-year-old African grey parrot. The group has released a new album cheekily called Number of the Beak and contains songs such as Beak of Putrefaction, Seeds of Destruction, Bird Seeds of Vengeance and Hellbent for Feathers. Feathers and links can be found in the show notes for this episode over at heavymetal666.com and if you have any extra birdseed or metal news to spare or share, post it with us over at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we travel back in time to examine the emergence of the bands that followed Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heat, Deep Purple and Blue Cheer of the early metal movement. As the scene was coming to be in the 70s, the word metal began being used to describe the sound, and bands were appearing that would be the first to wear the label heavy metal with pride. From the shock rock of Alice Cooper and Kiss in the United States, to the aggressive Aussie attitude down under of ACDC, and to the metal gods themselves, Judas Priest, we investigate the rise of traditional heavy metal. Subscribe to Heavy Metal Historian at iTunes or Stitcher. Like us on Facebook or follow us at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter. Email us at metalpodcast666 at gmail.com if there's a subject you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to investigate or report on, or if you have questions you would like for us to answer on a future episode. You can also hear me with Aaron Chavara on the Blendover Podcast, bringing you the news that the news isn't covering over at blendover.com. We'll catch you on the next Heavy Metal Historian, Hails and horns, and until next time, the group Grimwolf proudly declares their music as pure American werewolf metal, and as such, all of their material focuses on the topic of lycanthropy. Blending their musical base of thrash metal and groove metal, Grimwolf explore traditional and new tales of werewolvery on their releases. One song from their 2011 album Lycanthrope fixes on the traditional tale of Little Red Riding Hood, telling the story from the perspective of the wolf. From 2011's Lycanthrope, here is Grimwolf and the song Little Red as our closing headbanger. Thank you.
listen to them. Children of the night, what music they make.